The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Today I would like to discuss with you about a very peculiar way of working spiritually which people in our school did at some times and which from next season we are going to restart again strongly. It is about of a principle of working which is specific to some spiritual schools and which was brought into the Western culture first by Gurdjieff again, the great initiate Gurdjieff, and that is the principle of working in groups of spiritual work as they were called, as they are called today in most circles of spirituality, of people who use this, working in so-called spiritual groups. Generally, the spiritual experience and the spiritual accomplishment is supposed to be an individual accomplishment. As people say, you are born naked and you die naked. You are born alone and when you die, although friends and family may be around you, still in terms of your judgment day, you still are going to be alone. Therefore, you have to be able to fight for yourself, to fix things for yourself. You cannot rely on somebody else in the spiritual experience. You have to be that. You have to be it's that exception made perhaps of tantric couples in which evolution may be a tandem theme. You are not riding a single bicycle, but you are riding a double bicycle, a tandem bicycle, as it is called. And even there, unfortunately, things don't always go as deep as people would have wished. And sometimes people are together but starting from a certain level on, they are also alone, and they can finish, feel that they are alone beyond a certain level. They are on their own, if you don't like the word alone, if that's too tough, because that is what I meant through it. Then, uh, besides that, generally evolution is seen as a strictly individual thing. Like, you don't want, many people don't at least, to connect their evolution, their yoga, their spiritual efforts with anybody else's. Right? If I'm connecting my evolution with somebody else's and that someone else is laying on the job or is being lazy or is falling off the path, then I'm not happy because I have to pull for both. It's exactly like I'm rowing in a two-man boat and one of the oarsmen shirks his job, shirks his duty, or is distracted by somebody, something else. Then it is my task to row for both, and it's not very fun to do that. At least for the ego, it definitely is not very fun to have to make double efforts. That's why in spirituality, generally people say each one with their own karma, each human being has their own karma, each human being has their own evolution. We can have two people grouped together and one of them is a person of a high advanced evolution spiritually and the other person is a person who is a kindergarten evolution person in the big 
picture and that it's very difficult to make friends between a baby and a university student, between a first grade student and a university student, simply because their level, their concerns can be very different. Please remember that's not about the month of yoga or the level of yoga in a school like Agama in which you are in. can be in the same level of yoga and one of you is, a, is in kindergarten, spiritually speaking, and another one is in PhD levels. Therefore, generally when you look at it from this standpoint, always spiritual practice and evolution has been a one-man job each one for themselves. You do your practice, you reap the results of your practice. You lay on the job, you reap the results of that. You are applying yama and niyama, you enjoy the effects of being moral and ethical. You screw up on yama and niyama, you are going to taste the results of that. You are detached, you enjoy the freedom which detachment gives to you. You are attached, you bite the dust and you suffer from the pain which attachment gives to you. It's all a matter, it's all individual. Perhaps the only exception again, but that's a rare path, almost unknown in the Western world, and rare even in Hinduism, Buddhism and other Asian spiritualities, perhaps the only exception known or accepted, and even that one, I did not clarify enough, we did not have enough lectures for clarifying that, was the evolution as couples in Tantra. Either the couple is a permanent eternal couple or it's a temporary association, because a couple can hold together for 10 years and then they are doing great spiritual work together. And again, this is not a negativity, it, it does happen sometimes that relationships work up till a certain level and beyond that level they don't work the same way or they don't work even at all. Uh, in a world of detachment and discrimination people live with that and they, their main goal is to find God and therefore whatever else happens along the path it's just secondary because the main goal is the only thing that truly matters. And besides that, as I said, um, Evolution has been considered always a private thing, a personal thing. It is a little bit like Hermann Hesse describes it in Siddhartha or the glass beads game or in his very typical novel, Step and Wolfe, the Step, the Wolves of the Steps of the Plains, in which the spiritual practitioner is like a lonely wolf, a lonely ranger. You are alone in this big universe, maybe your guru can be a guide and a help for you if your relationship is correct with your guru, and for the rest, that's the way uh, things are. You are alone, you may have friends, you may have associations, you can see that in the Vedantic song like Nirvana Shakta, Shiva himself says, I have no, no mother and no father, I have no guru and no disciple, I have no friends and no enemies, I am consciousness and bliss without end, I am Shiva, I am Shiva. For some people this is almost scary, painful, like, you know, not to have even friends, not to have, it's like you have to be a very mean, tough, 
spiritual person ready to go to any length, to whatever length. You have, it's like a suicidal thing. It's like you have to give up everything. You have, you have to be ready to go to any length because only in this way you are going to transcend your human limitations, to transcend your fears, to transcend your present life, to go into eternal life, to go into all and everything. And in a certain way it's true. Going from some limited possession to the infinite is a great scare and that's why I keep telling to people often, many people say, oh I wish to reach enlightenment, but if somebody were to give it to them right now, they would immediately step back and say, wait, tonight I'm not really prepared because I didn't feed my carrot, my tarot or I didn't, you know, close my bank accounts or something. There is always a little something which you have to do before going into the infinite. And that's, of course, the fear of the ego. It's the ego which always is afraid to lose its partial status and become infinite, commingled with the eternal. However, some spiritual schools have discovered, have come up with another mode of working. And this working, you partly have it in our school, where through force of events, because of studying yoga together, for a month or two or six or eight or four years in a row, you belong to what is called groups. You are part of groups of study. And some of you have your colleagues, your classmates, so to speak, and you feel very good about them. And there are solid spiritual friendships that are appearing between people. And you rely on your mates. And when you have a spiritual dilemma, if you cannot ask me or one of the teachers, then you are asking your colleagues if you need a blessing, if you need help, if you are confused, if you feel that your spiritual aspiration is decreasing, you ask support from your colleagues and you go in the class and say, please everybody pray for me or bless me because I am in a difficult point right now. And, okay, some people never do that because they have a blockage in Anahata Chakra and they are afraid and ashamed to talk about themselves, about their problems, to ask for help. They are not humble enough. They project an image of strong, self-sufficient person and suddenly going in the class and asking, look, I am at the crossroads, please bless me. It's like you are having to be humble and to acknowledge that you are a fallible human being and all the rest. So some people's vanity is so twisted that even such a small thing is difficult for them. Different schools, some of the Sufi schools, some yoga, he from India and Tibet, some tantric schools, especially because of the sexual interaction which makes people very connected with each other and either in a couple or in open relationships. Some such schools, they invented, they came up with a new paradigm, with a new model for evolution, supporting thus the evolution of people in groups. But then they realized that the group must not be just some chaotic entity. Oh, just because we spent six months in Kopangan together, we are part of the group. There is on one hand the community, the soul of the school, the egregore, the collective soul of the community, 
which all of you experience, except those of you who are totally not paying attention and very, very unaware, and maybe those of you who are really, really beginners in spiritual things, don't feel, but those who are a bit paying attention, they can feel that there is a soul of the community, that there is a collective energy, that you together are creating a special island, oasis, soap bubble as some people call it, that there is a special environment, and that's not coming only from me, I am the trigger of this, but it is your energy, it is your aspiration, it is your common love and all the other things which are creating this. And it is a well-known thing that at the level of the school, especially when years have passed and people do the same thing in the same place and people progress, there exists a common soul and some people can feel it in this school stronger and stronger year after year following the destiny of its own, of course. Therefore, we are not talking only about that. That's part of the truth, that there appears a sort of collectivity, a sort of, these are my people, like Jesus said about his own disciples, these are my brothers and sisters, the people who want to listen to the word of God. This is the only people with whom I'm family. And... Thus, this spiritual family thing exists, but it can be taken deliberately to a further level, which will support you in evolution. It's one thing to know that this is, there is a spiritual family. In Christian mysticism there is a beautiful story. Uh, maybe some of you remember that John was in a very cryptical way, indirect because there were three different levels of meaning on that statement, was given the care of Virgin Mary while he was on the cross. While he was on the cross, his own mother came to watch him being crucified, and she was together with John, the beloved apostle of Christ, and in that agonizing state, Jesus tells some words which have both a prophetic and uh, archetypal value, but at the same time they refer strictly down to earth to a sort of advice or request which he gives. He tells to Mary concerning Mary his mother, but now family is over for him in this way, now he's on the last leg of his travel here on earth, and he tells to Mary, pointing, looking at John, who is basically a young man, he could be her son, and she says, woman, behold your son. And then he says to him, John, behold your mother. Like he tells to John, take care of my mother as if she was yours. And you, mother, don't cry for me. Take this young boy as your son and be happy. And it is true that John and Virgin Mary lived for a long time together. She lived in the island of Ephesus in the Mediterranean with him, and John was for many years the caretaker. He really acquitted himself of this job brilliantly. He took it to the heart. If Jesus told him this, then that's what he did. But of course this statement has many other layers of understanding, because when you say, woman, behold your son, it refers to the whole humanity. It's a much bigger statement than just strictly, because he could have said it straight. 
John, please take care of mom, you know, but he didn't say it that way. He said it in a much other way, which of course the consciousness of a Christ can generate such statements. And then, why did I tell you this story? Because John is like part of the family, is a sort of adopted son of Virgin Mary. And if you put Jesus aside, who is considered to be an avatar, and not a creature by the, but the creator, at least in Christian mysticism, because in Kashmiri Shaivism you wouldn't make that difference, then you can say that uh, John is part of the super elite family of this earth, because John is like related to Mary, and indirectly they are both the family of Christ, at least as long as Christ was on earth. And then there is a story from the stories of the fathers of the desert, that one of these elders was doing formidable spiritual practice and was basically enlightened and very, very holy. At some point when he is about to pass away, another great monk who was witnessing him and was praying with him has suddenly a vision that this old man was lying on his deathbed and suddenly the Virgin Mary, there appear angels, the heavens are opening, he starts having all these divine opening of heaven's visions, and then the Virgin Mary appears, which for Christian monks was like the second best thing that can ever happen, like only Jesus himself can surpass that. Virgin Mary was like the most amazing thing, it's the primary female manifestation, and the Virgin Mary comes and she is accompanied by John, and she points at the old man about to pass away and says, See, John, this is one of our family. It's a sort of goosebump thing that the Virgin Mary should come to your funeral and declare you are part of my family. Right? So this is what I'm talking about. There is definitely a family, a spiritual family. There is definitely a spiritual environment. There is definitely a brotherhood of spiritual people, and especially of spiritual people who follow the same spiritual path, and especially when they follow it under the same teacher. In India, in ashrams, people have the same guru and who follow the same path. They call each other Guru Bhai. Bhai is brother. So when they talk with each other, they say, we are Guru Bhai. We are brothers from the same guru, as if the guru is the father and the mother, and we are brothers through the fact that we follow the same lineage, the same guru. So, no doubt there are all these spiritual influences, but the, as the so-called esoteric groups are something much more deliberate, and which are using this energy of the group, but in a much proactive way, in a much more deliberate way, like you can have five people or ten people or twenty people or even a hundred, of course management becomes an issue, but you can have twenty people associate together like in the three musketeers, all for one and one for all, this kind of association. The idea in the three musketeers is again uh, very beautiful, it's a sort of a selfless relationship, all for one and one for all. This idea when applied in spirituality, it has generated, way before the Three Musketeers was written as a novel, 
It's not from there that the idea is coming. On the contrary, it's an idea picked up from the spiritual brotherhood. Uh, search for yourselves the life of Alexander Dumas and see what he studied in his youth. And you are going to be shocked to see that he was a religious student before he became a writer of cloak and dagger novels such as those to which he is famous through. And um, what I was saying is then, there is this idea of the spiritual groups and we apply it in the school sometimes in indirect ways and discrete ways and sometimes people want to do it in discrete, in, in deliberate and direct ways. So I am here tonight to give you hints about this way of work because we know that in the next season people already who understand well their allegiance to their own spiritual path and to their practice want to use methods which are as strong as possible. And working in spiritual groups is not an easy thing and it has some very peculiar conditions to be fulfilled, but it's a method which can be disproportionately strong. And that is why I gathered for you here a few ideas about which are the rules and which are the principles of working in spiritual groups for those of you who wish to accelerate your evolution by also using this. There are many tricks in the book and this is one of the tricks which is very little known and applied but we are guiding people in this way as well. I wrote things down because I don't want to lose a few details. That's why besides me speaking freely as I generally do, I will now want to go through a reading of three pages and of course stopping and commenting whenever the text is not necessary. I wrote this text years ago when I organized such a group while I was teaching in Denmark. Um, then of course I used that when I was teaching in Rishikesh because there the pupils organized. It is the momentum and the good moment for the people right now as well and that's why I answer to this momentum of the school by opening this door for you as well. Of course the problems of organizing spiritual groups in a place like this is the problem that people come and go and very often they come and go even at different moments in time so it's very difficult to synchronize such an activity but it is possible and we know that it works and I will help you in this way. Here are a few ideas. They are a little bit, some of them I formulated in Gurdjieffian terms because I saw some materials written by Gurdjieff and his disciples and I was inspired by their language so I didn't want to change the language but all of it is ultimately expressed from the standpoint of Agama Yoga. A spiritual group I'm reading is usually an agreement between the eyes, the higher selves, the Atmans, not the egos, of a certain number of persons. So it's like a deal. It's like the Knights of the Round Table. It's a pledge. It's a, an agreement. And you don't go back on your agreements when you are a spiritual person and at that level. For starting and unfolding together, the war against their false personalities 
or mosques or egos. As everybody who knows a bit of spirituality knows, our problem ceaselessly is that we mix up our ego and the various false personalities called masks by some people, which we have a lot in us, there's not just one ego, they're actually psychologically we have several personalities, only that they are not split from each other so we don't suffer from schizophrenia. We are having multiple personalities but they are integrated in a common being without, there is conflict but there, there is no split. If there is split then we are dealing with a severe mental disease and that's a total totally different issue. So everybody knows that fighting with these false eyes, with these false personalities, is one of the biggest issues in spirituality because as long as you don't go to the real self you haven't reached the goal. And this can be done by the help of other people. You can associate in this game and sometimes these associations lead to just chattering, talking, ridiculous nonsense when they are done inefficiently. Now people gathering together they can end in a bunch of endless words and on the contrary if they focus they can really do a huge work. You'll understand in a second why. Let us take the example of in my papers it's John, but because we have John or Johns in the school, I don't want anybody to feel singled out, so I'll change it to Oscar, our new target name. Let us take the example of Oscar. Oscar is made of two parts, the genuine I, the Atman, and Oscar, his personality. Usually, the I, the Atman, is without strength in front of Oscar, the ego. It's the ego that runs the show in the daily life, as you know very well. Oscar is the master. Let us now presume that we have 20 persons in a spiritual esoteric group. Then, 20 eyes, also because they can be detached very easily as to, as relative to Oscar, begin to fight against a single Oscar. They can now be stronger than him, than his ego. In any case, they can at least disturb his sleep. Even if they can't go the full Monty, they can disturb his, they can crack his armor, prevent him from sleeping as quietly as before. Thus, the goal is reached. So I hope you get, no, like, there is somebody, no, you see, in your own yoga group, there is a person who is declaredly a spiritual practitioner, one of your colleagues, one of your classmates, and yet both you and three other people in the class know, can see, you agree fully, so it seems that it's a correct view, that that person is, for example, very egoistic. Although being at, I don't know at what level of yoga class, although this and that, that person is still very egoistic. And when talking to each other, you say, what are we going to do about Oscar? Oscar is with us in the class, and Oscar seems to be growing into a jerk, you know, like after all this time, still his or her ego, doesn't matter, is really painful. So what if we make a meeting with Oscar and put him in front of the group, and we simply bombard him full on? And we tell you, you should know how we see you, because maybe you think you are the next Milarepa. Look, 
dear Oscar, how things appear from the onlookers. Crack his shell, break him into pieces, pulverize his mask. Twenty people, you know, when there is a proverb which says if two people tell you that you are drunk, go home and sleep it over. No, because it's like, it means you, you probably think you are not drunk. Oh, I'm not drunk, I can drive all the way home. If two people tell you you are drunk, better drop the car, go home and sleep, you know, because you probably are. So it's a very powerful thing, because it's using your peers to help you. Don't forget that in the view of Kashmiri Shaivism and others, every human being is the manifestation of the divine consciousness. So if you think that all the other people are stupid and they don't know who you are and what you need, then you are just suffering from a diabolic arrogance. This is a Luciferian vanity that you think that you are so smart and important that your peers are too stupid to give you any advice. While one or two may be skewed and partial, when it comes to twenty, the partiality has gone, because there you make a sort of average of everything, and there you are it. Moreover, when the work with oneself begins, each gathers materials and begins to accumulate observations upon himself. Somebody says, I notice that it, when it's full moon, this is happening. Somebody says, I am on astrology and I have noticed that every time when the Saturn is in this position, this and that happens. Or I have studied people's astrological patterns and I know that this and that happens. Another one is focused on or has read a book on Enneagram or something. Another one works strongly on Ajna Chakra. The fifth one says, I have determined firmly that something in people's destiny and temperament is reflected by the shape of their feet and toes. And I've been looking at people's feet for a year or two, and now every time when I see someone's feet, I have an immediate connection with the personality of that person. I think the feet can be very illustrative, because you can do your face, you can do your hands, but the feet nobody really cares or is paying attention and the feet can be very, very revelatory when deciding the temperament of a person. So, five people have five different talents. What if they would make a circle and join them? Like, no, not everybody needs to study astrology. Not everybody needs to study feet. I have been observing people's feet for two years, then I can share it in one weekend with everybody then that makes it so much shorter for them. I basically took all their karma away because I gave them a knowledge which I studied a lot for and they don't need to spend two years on astrology, two years on feet studying, two years on, uh, I don't know what other, on working on Ajna, two years. It's a shortcut sometimes. It, sometimes it can be done. Twenty persons will therefore have twenty times more material and each of them will be able to use the sum total of this material because the exchange of information is one of the purposes of the existence of the groups. That is what Gurdjieff describes 
that he did with the famous group called Seekers of the Truth, when Gurdjieff discovered that he was frantic for spiritual discovery, he grouped himself with a number of people, out of which only one or two were known by the name. He never said clearly who they were. He claimed it was a group of 10, 20 people, and these people, they had one, their main rule for the functioning of it, they had to meet once a year, and they had to share everything they had discovered with each other. Like if anybody discovered, like they were all willing to find out where are those mysterious Sufi monasteries where you could learn in Afghanistan or in Turkmenistan, in Kazakhstan, where they could learn all those secret movements and a real doctrine for self-development. Who did this? Who did that? They would meet once a year. Everybody had the honor, obligation, that once a year, at a given day, they should be there. Whatever the difficulties, they should be there, except if they are dead or severely ill. Otherwise, they should put this in front of everything, ahead of everything. Ahead of family, ahead of obligations, ahead of job, ahead of everything, they had to put their group, their spiritual group. And they made amazing progress. And according to Gurdjieff's oral statements, not written material, out of this group, only two people turned back to the West, and all the others, 18 or as many they were, they ended in Shambhala. They basically found the way to Shambhala, and two found that they had a mission and they had to come back. One was him, and one was another very mysterious person that I let you discover by yourselves. And uh, thus, therefore, a group, a group can find you the way to Shambhala. A group can find the inner earth if they put their energies together and everybody, nobody is a parasite living on the back of the others. That's how, of course how you choose your group, you know, because you don't want to choose uh, cheaters and people who are just bent on exploiting you. Therefore, belonging to a group is an elite thing, like you have to choose and if you don't like, you say, no, 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 I in a group with that person, never. No, and it's not for me, therefore, of course, it's meant on preferences, clearly. When a group is about to be formed, because I know now that you will start forming groups, some conditions are imposed to all its members, like this is not a hippie rainbow gathering, it's very, very strict, and it is decided from above, because if you don't do that, it won't work as a group, it will work like a hippie gathering and it will not generate spiritual support. It will just be a gathering of people and then many people say, you know what, rather than sitting here with you guys and chattering like idiots, I prefer to go in my room and do a meditation. It's more profitable for my meditation, for my evolution, rather than dilly-dallying here with you. You have a talent for just talking nonsense, wasting time, chattering, that's not what I want to do. So, of course, a group will never be doing chattering and silly stuff. It's meant, it's like intense spiritual push. That's what its meaning is. It's not dilly-dallying. You want to have a group of friends to play football or watch movies or eat pizzas or... You surely can find that very easily. That's not an esoteric spiritual group. 
esoteric spiritual groups have been settled, the rules have been settled in such a way so that they make the dilly-dallying and the deviation of it impossible. It's, it's for your own protection, it's self-protection, so we make sure we don't go any wrong place. And some special conditions may be stipulated for each. If a person has a special problem, then the group can put a special condition to this one person. Like somebody talks too much and uselessly. And then the group says you are part of the group, but for the first three years you never talk. You only listen in this group. It's just a condition which is not put to everybody, but to just one person who has a problem, a weakness there. The general conditions set at the beginning of the work are usually of the following kind. I'm giving you the lowdown, the details. I wrote them with letters. A, the first and usually considered the most important. It will be explained to all the members of the group that they must keep secret all what they hear or learn in the group. And not only for as long as they are its members, but forever, for always, for the rest of the length of your lifetime. This is a first indispensable condition. Like this, without this there is no esoteric group the principle of which must be assimilated from the very beginning. It must be understood here that this is not at all an attempt at making a secret out of those things that are not essentially a secret. Like, you know, somebody communicated something about the human food or something about the astrology or this or that. Why make a secret of this? That's not the point. You are not looking at the right place and neither of depriving the members of exchanging opinions with other friends or acquaintances. The simple reason of this condition is that they are incapable to transmit accurately what they have heard in the group, because the group creates a special state of consciousness. It becomes like an egregore, and it's exactly like Swami Lakshmanju and others, like Yoga Swami, of whom I read last week, or when I read, Yoga Swami never encouraged people to record his words, because he said, my words are valuable only in the context in which they have been spoken. And if you put my words on paper and repeat them 20 years later to somebody in a totally different context, it will be rubbish. My words, words can never be absolute truths. Words are just words. And they can experience, they can express only a relative state of mind. Therefore, the state of mind in which those words are produced inside a true group, like remember, not a group of football fans who watch a match, a football match together, but a group, an esoteric group, that state of consciousness, that motivation, that momentum cannot be reproduced. Absolutely, even if you are enlightened, Maybe Ramakrishna uh, can, but then we are talking about somebody who liberated themselves from all the rules, but unless, unless you reach there, you cannot reproduce that state of consciousness. And that's why whatever you say, oh, in my group we decided this, or you heard about this, or somebody said that, will never produce the same effect. 
many, many people, they were like, well, remember Swami Lakshmanju, you know, he was telling to one person one thing, and then he was telling to another person another thing, and people told him, Swamiji, are you crazy? And he simply said, every statement is valid, only in the context in which it is made. People believe that words hold an absolute value, but they don't. They are valid only in the spiritual context where they are given. So I, as a guru, he said, I'm free to tell to this person this and to that person that, because it answers their personal needs at the moment where I talk to them and where I guide them. And therefore, don't ask me to be like a dictionary or like a book. You need that letter, go and buy yourself a spiritual book of guidance. A living soul will act in a different way than a book. We are changing all the time, growing up all the time. But very quickly, so the simple reason was that they can't transmit, I continue. But very quickly, through their own personal experience, they will begin to realize how many efforts, how much time, and how many explanations are necessary for managing to understand properly what has been said or done in the group. For from that moment on, it will become clear for them that they are incapable to give to their other friends accurate ideas upon what they have learned. Learning is not just dead knowledge. Learning is alive. Knowledge and knower are one. At the same time, they begin to understand that by giving to their friends, outsider friends, false ideas, they ruin the possibility of these ones to ever understand pro properly those things, without taking into account that they create thus for themselves all kinds of troubles and problems in the future. That person thinks that they know, because you told them one of these profound discoveries, and if they think that they know, they don't investigate anymore, and you get the negative karma because you stop the spiritual investigation of a person through your stuff. In such cases, for an instance, the other people, people who are not part of the process, they begin to argue with him, trying to impose their own point of view upon those things, or interpret in a wrong way what he has said. Remember what Jesus said, if you give, if you cast pearls to the swine, the pearls will trample on them and then turn against you. That's exactly the same thing. These are pearls and they have to be kept for those of the level. When a man notices this, he finally understands, yet too late, now you broke the vow of silence, the need and the use of this obligation of secrecy. There is also another reason which is no less important. It is very difficult for a man, for a human being here, to keep silence upon the things that concern him. Everybody wants to express themselves. Everybody wants to blurt and to let the world know them. We pathologically almost want to show ourselves to the world. Everybody is psychologically a bit of an exhibitionist and tries to show himself, I am a vegan, I am not doing this, I am doing that, 
I'm tantric, I'm, you know, like we always need to share, like why can't you just keep silent and not tell to anybody what you are, you know? So, he would like to share his thoughts to all those in whom he trusts, at least. Yet, this is one of the most mechanic of all desires. Gurdjieff, that's a term from Gurdjieff. Gurdjieff said that people are robots, and thus they act mechanically. And many of our actions, from shopping to loving, from talking to doing I don't know what, are mechanical things. We don't do them aware. We are not aware. We do them mechanically. They are habits, like smoking, like, you know, we, they become customs. We do things unaware. And talking, being talking about yourself, is not aware. It's one of the most mechanic of all desires, and in this case the silence is precisely the form of the most difficult tapas. On the other hand, if a man understands the need of this rule, or at least if he observes it, even if you don't understand it, you still observe it, because that's the rule. This will be for him one of the best operations of self-remembrance, like awareness, because constantly you are about to go on your mechanical thing, and you constantly have to zap yourself to say, what? No, I have taken a pledge, right? You have to be aware all the time. It's self-remembrance in pure form, and development of willpower. Only a man capable to keep the silence when necessary, can be his own master. But for a lot of people, even for those who used to consider themselves serious and reasonable or reliable or silent, people who love nothing in the world more than the solitude and the reflection or meditation, it is very difficult to admit that their main characteristic is chattering. And that is why this requirement of discretion is very important. If a man considers this and complies to it, he will even trigger in himself certain sides of his personality, of his evolution, which he has never noticed. B, the second kind of rules which can be set or which should be set in a spiritual esoteric group, it is also asked to the members of the group to tell the whole truth to their master. The spiritual groups are always having a moderator, a master of the group, preferably the spiritual teacher of those people, because if anything goes amiss, the teacher can correct if the group is going into some stupid corner, then the teacher has the discrimination to say, don't do that. And for being able to guide that, Sincerity is absolutely necessary. This is a thing which must also be well understood. People do not realize the huge place held in their lives by lies, or at least by the suppressing or hiding of the truth. They are all incapable of being honest, both to themselves and to the others. They don't even understand the fact that learning to be sincere when necessary, is one of the most difficult things in the world. They imagine that saying the truth 
or not, being honest or not, depends on them. That's what the ego says. I decide if I tell the truth or not, if I'm honest or not. As a consequence, they must learn to be sincere and must learn this first concerning their teacher, their master, their guide. To tell a deliberate lie to the teacher, to be dishonest with him, makes their presence in the group entirely useless. And it is even worse if they manifest in a rude or gross manner in his presence. Like sometimes when we strip people of their mask, you should see how people go ballistic, they start getting rude, they start telling lies. Like paradoxically, people that you have never seen like this, and suddenly when their true nature is exposed, they act in a completely bizarre, incomprehensible way. And that's why the rule is, while you are in the group, in the presence of the coordinator of the group, you may not tell a lie, you may not get angry or aggressive or uh, rude or anything. That's, again, for the protection of it, because otherwise that person is useless in the group. It's completely not there. See, the third one. What is then asked from the members of an esoteric group is to remember ceaselessly the reason for which they have come in the group. We even put it for the advanced pupils in the campuses where advanced pupils are coming. We don't have it in Ananda so much, or I don't know if it's still there or not, because the beginners have some other fishes to fry, and they are definitely not part of esoteric groups, and for them it's just the beginning of a long process. But on some of the places it is written, Remember that you are not here to change Agama Yoga. Agama Yoga is here to change you. You came and knocked at our door to be transformed spiritually. That you should never forget in a spiritual group. When you join, why did you join? There are people who have been part of Agama Yoga for a year or two or three, and now they believe they have rights. They don't. They should remember the first day when they came. They are here to be changed. And if they don't want to be changed, if they somehow pretend that they are going to change somebody, it's out of the question. Only the teachers in this school have this mandate from me. They teach through a warren in which they are empowered annually to consecration to Shiva, the Lord of Yoga to correct people and to teach people lessons within a certain framework which is decided very clearly and which is not at all random or they teach the courses in a certain way, they do the things in a certain way and in that framework they can channelize a certain spiritual influence which the Divine Consciousness gives to them through consecration through the empowerment which they have received. So never learn, especially with esoteric groups. The esoteric groups is a special thing, and those of you who will start one, you will see. They have how people can deviate after a while and forget what the whole thing was about. They have come here for learning and working upon themselves for working not through their own ideas, because that you could have done at home, 
you work on yourself not through your own ideas, but in the way they are told to. Therefore, if they begin their work in the group by distrust in the method, in the teacher, and by criticizing the actions of those who guide the group, like they would understand better than the leader of the group how to conduct that group, and especially if they prove lack of external humbleness, respect, impatience, tendency to argue, then this brings to an end any possibility of spiritual work, for this is possible only as long as people remember that they have come in for learning and not for teaching. When a man begins to mistrust his spiritual guide, the teacher becomes useless to him, and he becomes useless to the teacher, and in such case it is better for him to search for another one, or to try to work alone. This will not be better for him, to work alone is not better, it's just a phantasmagoric illusion of some people, but will anyhow be less bad than the lie, than the mistrust, the hiding of the truth, the resistance, or the mistrust in the teacher of the group. D, the fourth condition. Besides these fundamental requirements, the first three, I will take them again. Secrecy, complete secrecy. Two, the telling the truth, being absolutely sincere. And C, remembering all the time that you are in a group to learn and not to teach anybody anything. Besides these fundamental three requirements, it is presumed naturally that the members of an esoteric group must work spiritually. Otherwise, of course, it's a pro forma, it's just a hypocrisy. If they confine themselves to attend the group meetings, sometimes it is possible to meet weekly, when you are living in the same place for a period of time, but do not work like they don't do any practice at home, and only fancy that they do so, if, or if they deem as a work their mere presence in the group, oh, that's your big gift, that you show up. That's your work. Or even more, as it often happens, if they attend the meetings just for spending their time in a fun way, seeing the group as a cozy meeting place, their presence in comas, because it's not a presence anymore. This is not presence. This is presence physically, but spiritually you are not there. Their presence in the group becomes entirely useless. In such case, the faster they will be eliminated, or leave by themselves, because in groups people can be eliminated, the better will be for them and for the others. The fundamental, so you can see the groups are not an easy thing because these are some conditions resulting from the state of enlightenment and they, say they are like yama and yama, it's a strictness there, you cannot play with some things. The fundamental requirements that have been listed above determine the compulsory rules for all the members of the group, these four. 
First of all, these rules help the one who would like to work upon himself indeed to elude the thousands of things that might hinder him or harm his work, the work, and on the other hand, they help him to remember himself permanently. It happens very often in the beginning of the spiritual work that one rule or another have no appeal for one or another member of the group. They go as far as asking, couldn't we also work without rules? That's our hippie rainbow story all the time. The rules appear to them either as useless coercion of their freedom or as a dull and boring formality. And when they are reminded the rules of the rules, this is a reason of discontent, discontentment in them. In fact, the rules are the first and main help that they receive from the collective work. It is obvious that the rules do not have as goal to amuse them, to give them gratifications, or to make their life easier. The rules have a definite purpose, to make them behave as they would behave if they would be or exist spiritually, like if they would be at the level of enlightenment. That's why I say these rules are from above. They have been determined by spiritual masters along the time, realizing what the pupils need. So they are not meant to abuse you. Exactly like yama and niyama is not meant to amuse you. And it can be a pain in the neck sometimes. That is precisely the purpose. Thus, you kick the ego in the balls and you go to the higher self. That's precisely it. The rules have a definite purpose to make them behave as they would behave if they would be. Like really exist, if they would be awakened. Namely, if they would permanently remember of their essence, of themselves. And if they would understand how they should behave concerning the persons who are outside the group, or outside their spiritual work, which they do together, concerning those who are inside, and <clears throat> concerning the guide or the teacher of the group. If they would ceaselessly remember themselves internally, they would understand this and rules would be no longer necessary. But in the beginning of the work, they are not able to remember about themselves, the higher selves of course, and understand nothing of these things. Therefore these rules are indispensable and they can never be easy, pleasant or cozy. On the contrary, they must be difficult, unpleasant, and uncomfortable, or else they will not respond, they will not deliver the goods, they will not respond to their purpose. Besides these general rules, some particular conditions may still impose, be imposed to each person. They are generally related with the defects or the main characteristics of that person. Do not think that people can immediately form a group. This is too large of a thing. 
people must first of all prepare so that one day they can build a genuine group. But those who really aspire. But for this, they must first imitate a true group. In imitating it from inside and not from outside. And what can be done for this? Again, many people can here bring the issue if it's worth it. It is worth it. It accelerates your evolution in a neck-breaking way. But it's not going to be a walk in the park. Because I'm telling you, your ego, which you carry around, you do with your teachers when you are in the month of our yoga program. You go and you talk about Ahimsa or Satya. How was my week this week with my Satyam practice? And you tell whatever you want, whenever you want, if you want. Sometimes you consider it a waste of time and you sulk and stay silent there until we stop this endless nonsense and let's start with the asanas for God's sake or let's play the video because I'm busy and so on. And that's actually an arrogance, an isolation. When you are in the spiritual group, if at some point the 19 members of the group, they decide to focus on you, you are being turned into shreds, I can promise you that. And you'll go home like not knowing if you are walking or lying down, and you will be like completely, completely taken out. Like the group, especially a spiritual group made of spiritual people, and guided by the teacher so that they don't go in the wrong places, can really break all the shields and all the masks and bring the person to some states of in insane lucidity and altered consciousness. So what can be done for this to proceed with this? First of all, you must understand that in a group all are responsible for each other. The mistake of a single one is considered as the mistake of all. Remember this, it's very difficult to take this responsibility. It's a pledge. The mistake of one is the mistake of all. So you have to jump in and prevent that person from doing any mistake at all costs. You become the caretaker of your brother. You have to that's why it gets very intense. You don't believe. This is a law, and this law is well substantiated, since, as you will see later, also what is one by one is one by all. And this instantly. So in the moment when one of the group gets a higher state of consciousness, a revelation of the heart, a state of clairvoyance, Everybody gets it, which is too good to be true, right? Like, but the price, there is a price to pay, and the price is you have to go like an organism, like a body, together, completely together, all for one and one for all, together united in good as well as in trouble. It's always there. This is not a joke. I hope you realize that this method is formidable, but of course it is very, very serious. The rule of common responsibility must always be present in the spirit. It has one more aspect. 
the members of the group are not only responsible of the errors of the others, but also of their failures. The success of one of them is the success of all. The failure of one belongs to all. A great mistake done by one of them, for an instance, the violation of one of the fundamental rules, unavoidably may even entail up till the dissolving of the group. Like the whole group stops if somebody breaks the secrecy. As simple as that. A group must work like a perfect machinery, but the parts of the mechanism must know each other and help each other. In a group, there cannot enter persons who oppose to the interests of others or to the interests of the collective work of the group. And there cannot be accepted personal likes and dislikes that hinder the group work. All the members of the group are friends and brothers, but if one of them leaves, and especially if he is expelled by the master of the group, he becomes an outsider, exactly like anybody else. Like your previous friend, suddenly is an outsider. The, and the final sentence which I wrote here is to be meditated upon, because the rules are tough, aren't they? The advantage of the affiliation or non-affiliation to a group, like if you decide to be part or not, depends on its results. The tree is known by its fruit. We are practical people. It's stupid to speculate if that. It all depends on the results. The advantage depends on the results. So it's worth it or it's not worth it. Finally, to give you an illustration, I wanted to give an illustration taken from the famous Kaula school of Tantra, giving you a few explanations, because the Kaulas of India are typical example of spiritual groups in the environment of yoga, and especially of Tantric yoga. That's why this is a very close to the soul of this school. This school is a bit of a Kaula school, of course, Although in curriculum we teach things outside of the Kaula, like Hatha Yoga, Kundalini Yoga, which were part of some Kaula lineages, Trika, Kashmiri Shaivism, which again were part of some Kaula lineages, and therefore we are very close to that through a lot of things. Therefore I would like to read you a very short material, just for illustrating the Kaula environment, and the Kaula teachings. This is a lost teaching today in India. It already disappeared in the time of the British rule of India for various reasons. I don't have time to go to the history of this. And they were united also because some of these people, they were into the sexual tantra and being into the sexual tantra, they were part of small families or groups, elite circles, in which also the sexuality was part of the bond. It does not mean at all that spiritual groups should be connected by sexuality. For example, the spiritual group of Gurdjieff had nothing to do with sexuality. So it's not, but in a tantric school like Kaula, 
that was for some of the groups, it doesn't mean that for everybody and everywhere again, it's a self-decided thing, that was part of it. Here are a few interesting things about the mysterious kaulas. Kaula is a word, first of all some dictionary explanations, is a short for kaula marga, the path of the kula. This spiritual approach is extolled in the Kular Navatantra, one of their root texts, as follows, quote, Just as the footprints of all creatures are lost in an elephant's footprints, so the philosophical viewpoints of all people are absorbed by the Kaula teaching. Just as iron is never comparable to gold, so the Kaula teaching should never be likened to any other teaching. So riding on the vehicle of the Kaula teaching, the most excellent person goes across the island of this world to heaven and then obtains the jewel of liberation. In all other philosophical viewpoints, people attain through liberation, through prolonged practice. However, in the Kaula system, they are liberated almost instantly. That's, of course, because of the tantric nature of the teaching, not only sexual tantra as an efficient system, and also because of the structure of groups, of families. Unquote. End of quote. Fundamental to the practice of the Kaula school is the divinization of the body through stimulation of the flow of the nectar of immortality or amrita, soma. In the Kaula jnana nirnaya, this ambrosial liquid is stated to be the true condition of the Kaula. The term Kaula also applies to a practitioner on the spiritual path of the Kaula school. According to the Akula Vira Tantra, there are two classes of Kaulas. The artificial Kaulas who know the serpent power, Kundalini Shakti, and seek to manipulate her to gain enlightenment, and the spontaneous Kaulas, the natural Kaulas, who have already achieved identity with Shiva and abide perpetually in the state of Samadhi. The beginnings of this school within the broad movement of Tantrism may reach even back to the 5th century AD. Traditionally, Matsyendra is venerated as its founder, through, though it appears that he merely founded the Yogini Kaula branch in Assam. Be that as it may, by the time Abhinavagupta wrote his learned works on Kashmiri Shaivism in the 10th century AD, the Kaula tradition was already well established looking back on a long history. In consonance with the Siddha tradition, the Kaulas believe that enlightenment is a bodily event and that the body's structures, if rightly manipulated, would yield self-realization. The central mechanism of this process is the serpent power, Kundalini Shakti, also known as the Kula. That's very much what we do. I'm reading this so you see that it's basically the same principles, so in spirit this school is sharing the Nata, Kaula and Trika lineages. The body positive orientation of the Kaulas, because Tantra is body positive, like the body can be used, is God. The body positive orientation of the Kaulas included the employment of sexual rites, like Maituna, a feature of many Tantric schools. The literature of the Kaula school, which was probably very comprehensive, is poorly preserved and very little research. The most popular work is undoubtedly the Kularnava Tantra, another less well-known but for the historian more significant treatise 
is the Kaulagyana Nirnaya. Both have been quoted and another one. Kula, which in Sanskrit is synonymous to Kaula, so it can be spelled K-U-L-A or K-A-U-L-A, both work, is a term with many meanings. In ordinary context, it stands for family, elite, or core. They consider themselves the noble house of spirituality, the family, the elite, thus conveying the idea of the inner circle. Something of this connotation is preserved in the usage of the term kaula or kula in the esoteric schools of tantrism, where it refers to the spiritual heart and to the divine power, shakti, kundalini being called kaula, the feminine aspect of the absolute. The masculine aspect of the divine is then known as akula, kula and akula, shakti and shiva. To confuse matters for outsiders, Kula is also used to describe the experience of the union between Shiva and Shakti, God and Goddess, power and consciousness. This was just a little bit of an excerpt from the data which are known, showing you a little bit of the nature of the Kaula and Kula, because they were one of the schools who also used these esoteric groups the spiritual groups, by grouping themselves in families, so to speak, you realize that there was no blood connection between them, they were not really families, but they were like spiritual families. This is a powerful aspect of spirituality. I hope you understood how the evolution is administered in this way, and already in the next season, some of the advanced pupils will proceed with the spiritual group, with working in a spiritual group, which will be enlarged accordingly. Should the needs of the school require it, we may have even several of them. That has to be administered very, very accurately. This is just to open a new door for you to understand the possibility of working in groups, which of course requires some additional effort but which at the same time yields astonishing results in very short time for those who feel that they've got the stamina, the aspiration to accelerate their own spiritual evolution even more. We pride ourselves with teaching here in Agama a system of yoga and of evolution which really does produce effects and evolution People come totally ignorant and in six months they can already feel the chakras, feel the prana, which are forms of clairvoyance, ultimately a little bit more and they can start identifying the music, the chakra appearing from a musical piece that is played, they can start recognizing typologies in other people and thus recognize and see chakras in other people as well, and this is going like to you, to most of you, it sounds like perfectly normal. That's what we do day in and day out. But for the outsiders, these are mind-blowing things. And people studying parapsychology or others, when they encounter such a group, it's like, boy, either all of you are nuts, or this is something which needs to be studied really close, because it's like, how come, you know, that 
generation after generation, group after group, people go and learn and develop and they develop abilities and they start experiencing altered states of consciousness and they hear the nada inside their head and the hundred thousand other things which are part of our daily yoga practice and we consider them just right, just as daily aspects. So although we already pride ourselves with having a strong system, efficient, which gives measurable, visible, considerable results in short time, there is also the story of the spiritual groups, of the esoteric groups, because some people want to push their evolution even further, even stronger. Thus, tonight I have opened this gate, I have illustrated for you the ideas contained into this, and of course it will be up to you to take the proper decisions to act in the direction of that. It's a strictly personal issue, if any. It's not something which is compulsory in the school or anything, it's just a very peculiar opportunity, it's a very peculiar possibility for that. With this I have finished. Namaste. Enjoy what is left of this evening. Continue with your spiritual practice and blessing for your spiritual practice and for your spiritual efforts. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.